0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like for you to open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians and I'm very pleased that today we're beginning a new study on Sunday mornings, a new book in the New Testament. And this is Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica. If you're not familiar with it, Thessalonica is a Greek city. It's still in existence today, although it's known by a different name. In Bible times, it was in Macedonia. That's modern-day Greek. And Thessalonica was a metropolis that was formed from the combination of several nearby cities and then named after the sister of Alexander the Great. Paul visited this city when he was on his second missionary journey in AD 53 and then in AD 55 he wrote two letters to the church and these are the letters of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. This morning I'd like to begin a series of messages on these two letters and I've titled this series, Living in the Light of Christ's Return. That title is not unique. I'm sure that you might be able to find a book somewhere that's used it, and there's probably some other preacher who's used that in his sermon titles, and it's common because that is the subject of these letters. As New Testament Christians, this is what we're waiting on. We're waiting with the hope of Christ's return, we're waiting on this promise that Christ made to his disciples that he will come back. And this series is about how we should live as we wait for Christ to return. Now, well, the major theme of the two Thessalonian letters is sanctification. And sanctification is both an Old Testament and New Testament doctrine. It simply means that we are to be holy. That is the root of sanctification, that we are to be holy, and that means that we must be different, we are to be separated from the world, and we are to live in obedience to God's commandments. And in both Testaments, God said that we are to be holy as He is holy. The Bible says that we are to be separate from the world. It says that we as Christians are very peculiar people. And it says that we are a holy nation and we are to maintain our purity in this world. That we might be a good testimony and a light to others that need to be saved from their sins. Now often you'll hear that all that Christians want to do is to impose themselves on the value systems of others... Or you may hear that Christians always have their heads stuck in the clouds and that we're not rational thinkers. We, we're, we're, we're not, we're, we're, we're just not in tune with society. We're not in, in tune with, and we don't believe the same things that they believe. And we have all these weird ideas. And they'll say, you're just too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. And you'll hear that we are disruptive and that we are intolerant of others. Well, those are false charges because All that we really want to do as the people of God, believers in Jesus Christ, is to show people how their lives can be meaningful. We want to show them how they can fulfill their purpose, the purpose for which God made them. And that purpose is not self. You know we live in a me generation where everybody thinks I've got to fulfill things for myself. I'm number one. That's the pervasive teaching of the me generation. But the purpose of our lives. And you know it because it is the major theme in this church. The purpose of our lives is to glorify God. That we were created in God's image for God's glory. And our souls are never going to be satisfied. We're never going to find peace and contentment in this life. Until we live for the purpose which God made us. Now, these two letters from the pen of the Apostle Paul give us good reasons why we should live in holiness, to be sanctified as we wait on Christ to return. Now, we're going to begin by reading uh, chapter 1 in its entirety. The theme of the study is in verse number 10. Not, I'm not going to talk about this specifically today, but verse number 10 says, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. That is the overall theme of these studies for the next several weeks and months. How are we to live as we wait on Christ to return? Now, I don't often have you stand for this part of a of the reading during during the sermon. I don't often do that. But if you're able to, I would like you to stand because we're going to read this entire chapter. We're going to start 1 Thessalonians 1, verse number 1. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse number 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace unto you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God word is spread abroad broad so that we need not speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come." That concludes the reading of the Word of God. You may be seated. The message today and next week will concentrate on verse number two, in which the Apostle Paul said, we give thanks to God always for you all. Obviously, Paul was a Southern Jew because he said you all, or as we say in Kentucky, y'all. And Paul's gospel, we see, is a gospel of gratitude. That is a gospel of gratitude that is a gratitude for the saving grace of Jesus Christ that each of us as believers has been granted. And then also thankfulness for those people who have been saved by God's grace. I think this is a very good place for us to continue after we finished our last series, The Spirit Speaks to Seven Churches. Before I uh, left for this year's, first half of this year's sabbatical, we'd finished 33 weeks of study in the seven churches of Asia, and those churches were representative of churches throughout history and of the modern day churches, and we learned that most churches do very poorly as they wait on Christ to return. Our churches have very serious problems the worst of these problems were characterized by the Laodicean church in Revelation chapter 3, which it did so poorly that it was debatable whether they were even Christians. They weren't separate from the world. They weren't holy. They pursued worldliness rather than godliness. And these seven letters or those seven letters that, that Christ sent to those churches were very important because he had set to return to the earth. And the question is, how is he going to find his people living when he returns? John wrote that we should live so as not to be ashamed when the Lord comes, that it's best for us to be found faithful and to be sanctified holy so that we welcome that sound of that trumpet of the archangel, the voice of his trumpet, and the announcement that Christ will return. John said this in his first epistle. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we shall have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If ye know that he is righteous, ye you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. That phrase, abide in him, that is conditioned upon the righteousness of Christ, that we are to be righteous as Christ is righteous. God gave us His Holy Spirit to live in us, to enable us to live holy lives, and that is our sanctification. Now, understand as we read this letter and study it, that Paul started churches that had the same ups and downs as the churches we read about in Revelation, and we might expect that because all of those churches in the Revelation were connected either directly or indirectly to Paul's ministry. The first church was the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. Paul started that church and he spent 18 months in Ephesus teaching them the doctrines of God's word. And by the end of his ministry with them, they'd learned some very deep, difficult doctrines. But in the Revelation, it was 30 years after that time and they'd lost their love for Christ. And it seems they might very well have been more in love with their doctrine than they were with him. And so within 30 years of their founding, what Christ had to do was to send them a very strong letter of rebuke. Now, We can contrast the church at Ephesus to the one at Thessalonica. They received a letter also. They received one from the Apostle Paul, but it was only within about two years. They weren't a very old church. These letters are among the very earliest that Paul wrote, perhaps preceded only by the letter that he wrote to the Galatians. So this was a church that didn't have the benefit of a long ministry with Paul as he had at Ephesus. He was there maybe only three weeks before he was driven out of town and that brief time of ministry did not give Paul to teach in great depth as he did to the Ephesian church. Now apparently, one of the most important Of all Christian doctrines, the teaching that Christ will return and how that he would return and what he would do when he returned and what we're supposed to do before he returns, that wasn't really very well understood. And if you don't understand Christ's return, that's going to affect the way that you live. A church that's under much persecution, as this one was, will begin to wonder, has the Lord left us? Has the Lord abandoned us? Does he intend to keep us? And so they were confused about that. Well, the second coming is a great doctrine. It should be mentioned often in our sermons. It should be preached often because the return of Christ is our great hope. And we live expectantly that Christ could come today. And if we truly believe that he could come today, I think that it would change the way that we face every temptation in life. And I would submit to you that most Christians who say that they believe that Christ could come today don't live as if they actually believe it. How you live will affect your assurance of salvation. Doesn't the Bible say, if you endure to the end, you shall be saved? What does that mean? Well, I can assure you the ability to endure is not in your power, it's not your ability. You endure through the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. And this is exactly what I'm speaking of today. That when you live for Christ, that is the Holy Spirit inside of you who is sanctifying you to make you holy. One of the first things that we learn about this church in Thessalonica is their faith. God, or Paul thanked God for their faith and they lived their faith in Christ. They were a church that brought Paul much joy Because they were one of the good churches that remained faithful. About 12 years ago, we studied 1 Corinthians, and I I know that's much too long for most of you to remember. But let me just say that Corinth was a church that brought Paul much grief. They were proud people. They were egotistical and self-willed. They were lax in doctrine and morality, And those two letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church are the most voluminous of all of his letters. And that's because there was so much for him to correct. But here, this church, this letter to this church, is to a church that brought Paul much joy. And this is because they were still standing for the Lord. Despite their misunderstandings and lack of depth of doctrine, they were still standing for the Lord. And and their faith was so well known that Paul said, your faith is spoken of everywhere I go. In verses 8 and 9, Paul said, I don't even have to say very much. It's not necessary. Your faith speaks for itself. And this was a very good church that was a delight to the Apostle. But his ministry was very brief with them. He didn't stay very long, and that left some deficiencies in the depth of their understanding. The average stay for a pastor in a church today is about two years. Paul didn't even have that much time. Which makes me so thankful for 15 years of ministry in this church. 15 years is time for us to grow together, time for us to learn together. Time to get people grounded in the faith and that's what I've tried to do with you. And I'm so thankful for you because you're some of the most faithful, knowledgeable Christians that I know. Oh, I said this when I listened to Jason. I mentioned it last week. And when I heard the messages that our men preached, the laymen preached in our church, I said, these are knowledgeable men. These are men that have been taught and they've held on to the word of God. And so I can leave with this full confidence that you have accepted the word of truth. Just like they did in Thessalonica. Now let's start to dig into this letter. Our theme is verses 2 and 3. He says, we give thanks to God always for you all. Making mention of you in our prayers. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. There are three great spiritual characteristics of the church that are in these verses. This makes a very, very easy outline for us. The first is the work of faith. The second is their labor of love. And thirdly, their patience of hope. And I think that there's any one of you in here this morning that could preach this outline. Because right there we have the great triumvirate of Christianity, faith, love, and hope. In a nutshell, that is Christianity. I mean, isn't faith, love, and hope, aren't those the great ideals of the Christian faith? If you know Christ, then I think that any of you could step up here and expound on those themes and you could say, this is what makes me a Christian. Faith. That is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And love, love to God, and love to my fellow man. And hope, the great hope that I have in Christ, that he will return to receive me and take me up into heaven. That's the great ideas of the Christian faith. And we're going to talk about those as we go through First and Second Thessalonians. Well, let's go back to the beginning of this letter. Let's go back to verse number 1. And in verse number 1, the apostle says, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, under the church, of the Thessalonians. This is the part that I want to speak to today, and we're going to call these three men, Paul, Silvanus, and Timotheus, the Gospel Fellows. The Gospel Fellows. Paul included his co-laborers and his collaborators for this letter. Often Paul had to defend his apostleship So we look at this letter and we wonder why didn't Paul begin as he did many of the others where the first thing that he says, Paul, an apostle. Well, they never doubted his apostleship. Sometimes Paul had to defend himself as an apostle. In his letter to the Galatian churches, the first two chapters are filled with vindications of Paul's apostleship. In the letter to the Corinthians, once again, he had to defend that he was truly an apostle of the Lord. But the Thessalonians had no doubt, and so Paul didn't really need to spend much time explaining his authority. Now, we do find an element of that here, but it's only added to reemphasize that they had received the right word. That because it came from him, because he's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it came from him, this is the true word of God. This is God speaking to you through me, he would say. Now, we're going to refer to this verse many times, but if you'll look in chapter 2, verse number 13, it says that when they heard Paul, they received his words as they were the word of God. So Paul simply begins this letter in the custom of first century letters where he identifies the author or the authors. Silvanus and Timothy are his collaborators. So these are three great men of God that are complicit in this letter. Now, the Thessalonians knew Paul's two companions because they were with Paul when he came to preach in their town. Silvanus is Silas. He became Paul's traveling companion on the second missionary journey. Now you remember the first missionary journey ended successfully, but after it was through, Paul had a falling out of sorts with his first companion, and that was Barnabas. Now I don't have time to explain to you all that happened. You can read about it in Acts 15 but I do want to read just two verses in that 15th chapter where it says, And the contention was so sharp between them, that is between Paul and Barnabas, that they departed asunder from one, one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed unto Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren under the grace of God. So Paul split up from Barnabas and took Silas. Silvanus is his Latin name. And as you can see in verse number 40, he came recommended by others that were in the church at Antioch. Now going on in the 16th chapter of Acts, the second missionary journey began and Paul picked up another traveling companion and that was Timothy. And when this letter was written, Timothy was still a new convert. He was still a very young man, but he was a dedicated protege of Paul. And later, Timothy became a pastor. The two letters of First and Second Timothy are called pastoral epistles because in those, Paul wrote to Timothy to encourage him and to strengthen him and to advise him in pastoral ministry. Now, if you would, I'd like you to turn to the book of Acts because I, I believe that it's worth our time to examine the first part of this second missionary journey leading up to the founding of the church at Thessalonica. And when you see this, you certainly would not expect that Thessalonica, two years later, would become the brightest spot of joy among all the churches that Paul founded. Now beginning in Acts 16, Timothy enters into the picture as a new companion of Paul in addition to Silas. In Acts 16, verse number 1 then came he, that is, Paul came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess and believed. But his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they knew all that his father was a Greek. So, thus, here begins Timothy's missionary career. Can you think how blessed it must have been to be joined to the greatest missionary, the most effective witness for Christ that the world has ever seen? How blessed would it be to be able to travel with the man who is the church's greatest theologian, the one who gave the church its formative doctrines? I remember when I became pastor of Berean that Hazel, Hazel McGlade, used to say that Jason was my Timothy. Now, the best part of that was the comparison of me to Paul, but she also compared Jason to Timothy, and that's no small compliment. And she meant that that Jason was attentive to my teachings, that he was sort of like a sidekick to me, and I hope that... uh, I had something to do with forming Jason's doctrinal opinions, and so if you don't like him, it's probably my fault. Uh, I would call him my mini-me, but he's about four times my size, so that doesn't work. But if Jason, if Jason is to me what Timothy was to Paul, then I'll, I'll just tell you, despite what he said a moment ago, the no-do-nothing deacon, uh, I'll still say that I'm, I'm very blessed indeed to have Jason uh, in our ministry. So now you have these fellows, you have Paul, you have Silas and Timothy, and they forged this bond of friendship and faithfulness that enabled the gospel of Christ to sweep the Roman Empire. Now going on in Acts, there was a night when Paul was praying and he was contemplating his next move. And as he prayed, the Holy Spirit gave him a vision of a Macedonian man who pleaded with Paul that he would come there and help them. If you've heard of the Macedonian call of missions, then this is the reference for that. This is the source of that saying. And you see that in verse number 9 of Acts 16. Paul knew that that call was from the Lord. This is not just an ordinary dream that people have, but it was the Holy Spirit speaking to him through the dream. And you'll notice in verse number 7 that Paul had in his mind that he was going to go in a different direction He had his own way to go, but the Holy Spirit said, no, I'm going to send you in another way. Paul wanted to go into Bithynia, but the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him. Now, I know that most people think that verse number 7 is not very important, but I see this as one of the most highly significant texts in the Bible. Why? Because it teaches that God is selective that he knows where his people are, he knows where the ones are that he wants to save, and he sends his gospel to those people. And you can be assured in my exposition of these two letters, it will include God's sovereign choice, because stamped on these letters as the underlying cause of their salvation is that God chose them. Paul only goes four verses into this letter before he mentions that. Paul heard this Macedonian call and it seemed to be a mixed bag of opportunity. He reached his first convert in Philippi. That was the chief city of Macedonia. He stayed there for a few days. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the edge of the river where the Jews often went for prayer. There's no mention of a synagogue in Philippi. So the Jews would meet in different places. And on this occasion, they had made it their place to worship on the river bank. And one of those worshipers was a lady by the name of Lydia. Paul preached Christ to her, and the Lord opened her heart to believe the gospel. And so she became the first fruit of the Macedonian call. She became the first European convert. And the text is very clear about how the seed of faith in her took root. The word says the Lord opened her heart. Well, then things turned ugly in Philippi. Satan never lies down. He never surrenders easily. And so he began to trouble Paul through a young girl that was possessed with a demon. And she followed Paul around for days with intentions to draw undue attention to him and his companions, mocking and telling people that Paul preached another god than the one they worshipped. And she said, Paul claims that his god is higher than all the gods that we worship, and we can only be saved through this one god. And that sounds good. That sounds like a message that a preacher would stand in this pulpit today and preach. But really it was only, it was all a planned attack to accept the people. And it's much like what you hear today, that Satan puts it in people's minds to say, no, there are many paths to God. And Jesus is just only one of those ways that you get to God. Demonic powers were at work. But God is more powerful than demons. And so Paul cast out the demon from this young girl. But that sparked a problem because evil men were using these demonic powers to make money from fortune telling. And for your edification, you can lump fortune tellers and palm readers and horoscopes into the category of demon possessed. Now you would think that someone that's been freed from the power of of a demon, this has got to be cause for celebration. But no, it wasn't. It angered them, just like it angers the LBGTQ movement when we say and when we preach, you can be delivered from the power and bondage of sin. Well, Paul and Silas then were taken before the magistrates of the city in Philippi and they were thrown into jail. And that night they sang and they praised God because they were worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. And that was very strange that they would do it because they were in such misery and they had been beaten. But this is what they did. They sang because they were men of faith who knew that God does all things well. And so they sang, they praised God in their affliction and then God sent an earthquake and He shook that prison freed them from their bonds. The jailer who kept them Knew that he was in trouble. It was his responsibility to keep the prisoners in. And he was afraid they were all escaped. But he came in and he saw Paul and Silas sitting there. They hadn't run away. And thinking that his life might soon be taken. He asked the most important question that anyone can ask. He said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Has anybody ever asked you that question? Was there ever a convert that was such easy pickings? And maybe we don't get that kind of reaction from people because we aren't doing very well as we wait on Christ to return. He asked and he got his answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And he did. And his household also believed. After that, the magistrates asked Paul and Silas to leave. I think probably that men who can cause earthquakes weren't very welcome in Philippi. And so there was an interesting twist that happened after this. Paul and Silas were Romans. And it was unlawful to beat a Roman without a fair trial. If you did, you were in danger of death. Well, the magistrates never gave them a fair trial. And when they found out that Paul and Silas were Romans, the tables were turned. And so they went sweetly to them and they said, we are so sorry. Please don't hold it against us that we beat you within an inch of your lives. And then beg them to leave. Well, Paul and Silas and Timothy left. But behind them, they left the core of a church. And that's what they were willing to be beaten for. Now next in chapter 17, the companions passed through two more cities. Nothing notable happened until they came to Thessalonica. Acts 17 verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few." Paul's custom was to visit a synagogue in the city if there was one because in the synagogues he would find his countrymen, he would find people that are already acquainted with the Scriptures and with the promise of the Messiah and then he would go in and he would debate with them, he would debate the Scriptures and he would point them to Jesus as the one that God had promised to save them. Now you see a very clear presentation of the Gospel in verse number 3. Opening and alleging... That Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. And that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. You see the gospel? Christ suffered for sin. He was crucified and he arose from the dead. He is the Christ. Christ means Messiah, the anointed of God. And so there we have the pure gospel. Christ crucified, buried and risen from the dead. The result of the pure gospel is in verse number 4. Many believed. The devout Greeks that it speaks of here are previous converts to Judaism. Now have become Christians. And the chief women are the wives of the politically important in the city. Many of them believed. Many believed. And that meant Satan is again losing ground. So in the next section we read at verse 5. But the Jews which believed not moved with envy. And took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down have come thither also, whom Jason hath received. And these do all, all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, one Jesus." And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. Now notice some things about preaching in Thessalonica. Many believed. That's the first thing. Many believed. Thessalonica was a city of about 200,000. So there were many to preach to. Secondly, Christians were well known. There wasn't a church there yet. Paul's the first to plant a church. But the people had heard of this burgeoning sect that were called Christians and that they were upsetting the empire and their impact was felt everywhere so that it seemed that the world had been turned upside down with their teaching. Thirdly, they said Paul preached contrary to Caesar. Caesar claimed to be God, but Paul preached there is no God but Christ. And that's a very odd complaint for the Jews to make to fuss that Paul said there's only one God, but these Jews are cowards and they're compromisers, and they agree with pagans on one major doctrine for them Christians must be stopped. No matter what, Christians must be stopped. So there's this uproar in Thessalonica and when they couldn't find Paul and Silas because they were hidden, they grabbed a disciple named Jason, the one who had taken Paul and Silas and Timothy into into his house and they took him and some other believers before the rulers and they gained a security deposit from them that Paul would cause no more trouble and then they let them go. Meanwhile, Paul and Silas had been whisked away in the night and they were taken to the next place which was Berea. And in Berea, Paul started the Berean Baptist Church. And his converts were people that loved the Word and they were constantly searching the Scriptures for truth. And isn't that what we are? We are Bereans and we search the Word of God for the truth. And before Paul left there, he built a gym and he called it a church. And there were many converts, one to basketball. No, that's not, that part's not in there. But listen, listen to this, this record of Luke in verses 11 and 12. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica. No, notice that. Thessalonica became the great church, right? The people that are planted there. But he says these were more noble than those over there in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether these things were so. Therefore many of them believed also of honorable women which were Greeks and of men not a few. More gospel success. The Lord worked in many hearts. But the Jews at Thessalonica were still mad. They were mad. Paul slipped away. So they followed him to Berea to seize him. And Paul had to get out fast. He was the chief speaker. So he left. Silas and Timothy stayed behind a little longer. And thus we have the story of how the gospel was preached at Thessalonica. Now I want you to relate this to what I said earlier. Paul didn't have very much time in Thessalonica. Did you remember the scripture said three Sabbath days, that is three weeks. That's all that he had. And and that's not time to ground believers in the faith. Some were one at the end of those three weeks, so he had no time at all. And so when he left, there were many unanswered questions. Would you note one thing for sure in the text of the letter to the Thessalonians. They were saved through hearing the simple gospel message. And they knew what they were supposed to tell others. They told others. Isn't that interesting? New converts don't know very much, but they do know this. They're supposed to tell others. God puts that in your heart when you get saved. You might not know very much, but you know how you got saved. You, you, you know enough to tell others how they can be saved. You don't yet know how to explain election and predestination. And you don't know all the details about the second coming of Christ and how that's going to take place. You don't know all of that, but you do know this. You know how you got saved. Do you need a theologian to tell, to be one who tells others? Do you need to be a theologian? No, you don't. You just need to know what Christ did for you and then tell that to others. And when I first started working on this message, it was weeks and weeks ago, it was in the same week that Billy Graham died. We admit we have concerns about Billy Graham's methods. We have concerns about his confusion on gospel points. But we also know this, that Billy Graham, and Billy Graham said this, he said, I'm not a theologian. He never claimed to be a theologian. I have no doubt Billy Graham was not a theologian. But I also know that he was driven by the compassion of souls for people. And he wanted them to be saved. And so without being a theologian, thousands upon thousands were won to Christ through his preaching. Now sadly, in the end of his life, he rejected and abandoned the exclusivity of belief in Jesus Christ only as a way to be saved. We're sad as the way to be saved. We're we're sad about that. An interesting point is that when Paul wrote a letter to the church at Philippi in Macedonia, that's that chief city, he wrote a letter to them when he was a prisoner in Rome. And in his greeting to the church, he indicated that there are some who don't preach for all the right reasons. And there are some who preach who don't have doctrinal grounding, not as much as they should have. But they must know the basic facts of the gospel to preach it. Paul rejoiced that while he was in prison and he couldn't preach, that there were others who preached Christ, although they weren't perfect in their motives or in other theological issues. And I'm not saying that we ought to join up with everybody despite their misunderstandings, because the scriptures say very clearly we shouldn't. But I do say that the simple gospel will save. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And if we are so theological that we forget to give people the simple gospel, then we're Ephesus, not Thessalonica. We've got to continue to preach the whole counsel of the word of God. We must ground people in the truth. That's all true, and Paul does that in this letter. But we should not abandon the simple gospel of Christ. So... I think that we start here. How do we live in light of Christ's return? I think that we should recognize that we have a lot of fellows here. And I mean not just men, I mean the ladies too. We have a lot of fellows. or In other words, we are a fellowship of Christians here. We are companions who together have a concern for those that are dying in their sins. And we must stand up and preach Christ, though we are opposed by those who hate Christ. And maybe if we were more faithful to that commission, more people would come to ask, to us to ask, what must I do to be saved? You see, when you start talking about the good news, why wouldn't anyone ask you that? When they begin to learn what Christ has done for them, why wouldn't they ask, what must I do to be saved? Maybe we would get that question if we started living for Christ. Can we start this way? Can we start by sounding out the good news of the gospel to those that need it? Now just one more verse and I'll let you go. Do you want to be a happy, contented Christian? Do you want the joy of the Lord in your heart? Did you know that rejoicing in your salvation is tied to your willingness to sow the seeds of the gospel? So it says in Psalm 126 verse 6. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. That's gospel gratitude. Paul rejoiced in their salvation. He rejoiced that the gospel was sounded out from this church at Thessalonica. And we just wonder, would he rejoice as much in us who have believed and what he say to the Berean Baptist Church, I have joy in you because the gospel is heard everywhere because of you. Gospel gratitude starts with those who can be grateful because they've heard. You and I have heard. And we can be grateful that we have heard and we have believed. Grateful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And with enough gratitude that we give that message to someone else. To give that message to those who can glorify Jesus Christ through the truth of the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's what people need to hear as we wait on Christ to return. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you with confession from hearts that know that we haven't done enough. We read this text in 1 Thessalonians and I think if we were honest, we could say that Paul probably would not commend us in the same way as he did these people. Yes, we have doctrine. We stand strongly on the doctrines of God's Word. We are concerned about digging down deep. We are concerned about finding what the Word says, exploring the Old Testament and studying it out, bringing it into the New Testament so that we understand better what Christ did on the cross. We've got a a doctrine down. We're working on that. Grounding people in the faith. But have we forgotten what we were first told to do? To give others the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those that are not theologically astute. Are capable of doing it. And we are not theologically astute. If we don't. Lord help us to be those. Who preach the true gospel. Of Jesus Christ. That has the power. To work effectually. In those that believe. Thank you, Father, for your people and for your message today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California,